We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. signs, please. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that There were white people who were responsible. You can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to feel with be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people. I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence. 
and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another, feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Welcome, everyone, to another week of The Truth Perspective on the SOT Radio Network. It is January 17th, 2015, and we're back. That was Robert Kennedy giving a speech the day of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Today we're going to be continuing our discussion of Martin Luther King a little bit, as well as talk about a couple other issues and some things going on in the world today. Today we have returning SOT editor Carolyn. Hello. Ilan. Hey there. And joining us today, special guest host, SOT editor Corey. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm Harrison, as usual, and we are the True Perspective. Um, so, Elon, did you want to take off from that clip there? Yeah, well, RFK basically was on the campaign trail when he uh, became aware of the news of Martin Luther King's um, assassination. And uh, it's really a, a remarkable speech for a number of reasons. Uh, one is it was right off the cuff. Um, this wasn't something that was prepared. And uh, look at what he says to these people. Uh, he was speaking at a predominantly black group of people. And uh, he's there delivering this shocking, horrifying news that their leader, their moral leader, their ethical leader, has just been killed. And um, what does he say? He says, you know, I know how you feel. I've lost a brother, JFK, to this. So he's he's empathizing with them in the moment and sharing his own anguish and pain about such a situation. He's probably also greatly aware of the fact that he has enemies of his own and yet he's still campaigning and 
trying to forge a way forward after his brother's death. Among other things, he's telling these people in a moment that they have a choice, and the choice is to either turn to bitterness and resentment and anger and lash out, or they can make some effort to gain some greater understanding about the situation and choose to continue on the path that Martin Luther King was on, which was nonviolence, and to just think about the situation. Things about this particular speech that uh, struck me as uh, resonating with the event of the Paris shooting of a half ago, uh, um, in which we found among a few, if no leaders in the world today, who are able to address it in as constructive a way as RFK did with the assassination of Martin Luther King. And perhaps later today we'll listen a little more to some of the things that King has said that resonate with the events of how we might use this as an example of exactly what to do in, in such a horrible time. What the being of a, of a great man like RFK uh, was that he was able to say these things at such a crucial moment. Oh, yeah. It's um, just listening to him. I've never heard that speech. I was quite young when this happened, when he was assassinated. But I'm sure he was acutely aware of what a delicate moment it was. The the one wrong word, one wrong sentiment could have tipped the anger into something that would have put the whole country into conflagration. He was able to walk that line and turn this incredible rise of emotion to bring it back to something of compassion, not necessarily forgiveness, but at least the ability to step back pulse would be, which is to seek revenge. I mean, it was just a brilliant tour de force. And, and uh, I can only imagine how he was feeling inside and wondering, you know, how the situation was going to play out, having to give such news. And, and you really hear it in the response from the crowd. I mean, they are cheering him on. Now, no doubt the shock and the horror of it, it's going to take some time to process after that, and maybe they went through a whole slew of different emotions and feelings and thoughts in the day following. But in that moment, he was able to plant the seed and, and get them on the side of not uh, reacting and, and view of not uh, turning bitter to the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, even though that was said in a certain context, what, something like 50 years ago, like you said, Ivan, there's a context in which it applies today, and that is the Charlie Hebdo shootings, the attacks in Paris recently, and what has happened um, since then. Um, just to provide a bit of background before we get into details, uh, we've been reading a book this past week or so called You Are Not So Smart by David McCraney. And this is a, it's a pretty fun little book. Um, it's, you know, it's written to, it's kind of like a pop, pop psychology book about cognitive biases, mental heuristics, logical fallacies. All the little shortcuts that you take just to mm-hmm. make thinking, thinking in quotes simpler as you go through your day. And basically pointing out, like the title says, that we're not as smart as we think we are, because people tend to, people tend to over 
overestimate and overvalue uh, their own intelligence and arguments and opinions and to even think that they have rational explanations for these things when oftentimes, perhaps more often than not, they don't. And so for each chapter, he's got 39 chapters, each one devoted to one of these different human quirks, um, anecdotes, um, scientific experiments, uh, demonstrating these things, some of which are better than others. I mean, I personally had some problems with the with the book in general. But then again, if I am right, hard to say if I am or not, if I am right, it only, it only proves the point of his title, You Are Not So Smart, which would include the author. So, you know, kudos for him for writing a book about it and giving a good demonstration at the same time. But, um, you know, we can save that for another time, getting into details. But uh, so one of the things that we wanted to do today is talk about a few of these mental biases and to show through those through those examples to you will give examples of how they how they play out in real life not just in your everyday life um you know with your family and friends but um how that extends into the social sphere and how we react to global events events in our country in the world that um have a, a great impact on the future and determine the course that the future may or may not take. And um, when we look at that, I mean, I like looking at history. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche at this point that, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, but it really is true. What's that quote from Mark Twain, Oh, Carolyn? Oh, yeah, Twain once said that um, history does not repeat, but it definitely rhymes. Yeah, that's a... I like that one. But the the point being that, I mean, you'll get people that, that will argue that history doesn't repeat because history can't repeat because the situations and, and uh, um, context is so different. I think that's horse hockey. Just for the simple reason that we're all humans, we all get into the same types of situations, the same types of um, conflicts that they're like, they're a, they're a type that exists regardless of the context. I mean, you can take a something such as racism. Now, racism isn't just against, um, it isn't just a, a bias from one group of people against one other specific group of people. Um, it, it, for example, you know, whites against blacks. It can be against any race, of course. And the same thing happens with history. We see certain patterns and cycles repeating, even if the details aren't exactly the same. And even then, when you look at these situations repeating, they there's such a striking resemblance between them that it's hard to it's hard to imagine that people can't see it. It's no accident that um, many many writers on the political situations and fortunes of the U.S. comparing it to Rome, mm-hmm. they see the same rise and then imperialistic expansion and then decline. Only it's been compressed into 200 or so years as opposed to 15 or 1600. And well, the the historical example I want to use is Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Now, even that's a controversial one to take because it, it seems like the whole Nazi thing has gotten to the point, at least on the internet, where I spend a lot of my time. That the there's the I can't remember the name of it, but the 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 law that um, any internet discussion will degrade to the point where someone uses the word Nazi, and then that you know ends the discussion because it's it's ridiculous. I recently had a, a, an incident that happened on Facebook where someone quoted a, a piece from the article I wrote on Charlie Hebdo, 
where I made the comparison between um, uh, identifying with Charlie Hebdo as a magazine in support of free speech as identifying with someone like Joseph Goebbels from the Nazi regime and um, in support of free speech. The idea simply being that um, to to support free speech is not the same as to condone and um, identify with the content of that free speech. The idea being that someone can say whatever they want, and that doesn't mean I have to agree with it. In fact, that can mean that I can vehemently disagree with it and think that it is an absolutely disgusting thing to say. Which is free speech. That some people in this discussion formed on this on this Facebook post kind of got to the first um, that connection, and then they were they were saying it was ridiculous to make a, a comparison to Nazi Germany because the, the comparison just doesn't apply. You just can't compare something like that to, to the Nazis. I guess the Nazis are off limits. Mm-hmm. So we had that idea of people being up that has not repeated. And I think part of the fact is because Okay, we're going to end this. Can you hear us now, everybody? All right, are we back? Let's see. Testing, testing. Okay, we're back. Okay, Carolyn, okay. do you remember what you guys were saying? Maybe Corey should back up because I was sort of answering this. Well, I was just pointing out that you were talking about individuals arguing about there there not being any parallels between Nazi Germany and what's occurring today. And I was just saying that that's obviously a view from nowhere that they're holding. They're not using any context. They obviously aren't drawing any on any of the information that's publicly available to make those connections themselves. And I mean, just in the just the last year, the report was produced that showed that Israel and NATO combined to put the lives of 15 million children into jeopardy. And when those uh, kind of facts are just ignored, then of course you can say there's no parallels between Nazi today if you're just not even going to look at them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the, the other thing that, that I was thinking is that um, we have such a surface society, a surface culture, and people will point to the fact that this can't be the same as Nazi Germany because the same markers aren't there. They aren't seeing um, the big rallies or they don't they don't look at the demonstrations that are happening, and so that's just like a journey. I don't see the same kind of forms, even though we have, have forms literally on the streets of America. I mean, these guys and their kids 
figured out they'd head off to, you know, Iran tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the details don't match, they don't perceive the larger underlying pattern. Yeah, Obama doesn't have a little mustache. Oh, God, I mean, no. And there's no swastika. I know. I mean, the the swastika color. is so drenched in blood. Yeah. I mean, you can you see that and you know exactly what it Look out today, you don't see that on the helmets. You don't see that on the, the patches of the soldiers. You see it's the, the camo that's, you know, the... And it's a fashion statement. Yeah. Corey, you just said something really interesting. You said that we we don't have the context uh, from which to um, assess certain things. Uh, the other day I was reading about Richard Pearl, one of the neo authors of The Plan for a New American Century. Uh, Prince of Darkness. God. Talking about, among other things, how uh, the you know Israel might prevail against the Palestinians. And he specifically used the words, we have to decontextualize the situation. We, mm-hmm. we we have to not put the the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis in its historical correct light. So there's been an actual concerted effort in the media and wherever else to to fuzz to make blurry this this uh, what would you call this this the ability to compare the two. Mm-hmm. Well, there are many journalists. Many journalists have been you know jailed for trying to make these kinds of comparisons. It's a dangerous thing to do mm-hmm. okay. in this time of free speech. <laughs> well, yeah. um, before we get into some of the specific biases and stuff going on, just I want to read an article that was published in 1933 in the German newspaper Der Sturmer, um, which was run by a guy named Julius Stryker. So I'm going to read it to you, and um, we'll just just let, let the words soak in. Keep in mind, well, you might want to keep in mind that it is um, totally ridiculous Nazi anti-Semitic propaganda. But, um, you know, that's what these guys were publishing. And this was in 1933? 1933. Okay. This was just days in March, just days after the fire at the Reichstag. So I'll begin. A few days ago, Germany was astonished by the news of arson in the Reichstag. Fires were set in more than 20 places in the building. It was almost completely destroyed. The ringleader is the head of the communist faction in the Reichstag, Representative Torgler. At the same time, the press brought another unsettling report. In the basement of the Communist Party headquarters, secret passages and tunnels were discovered. Material that encouraged civil war was found. Detailed plans to murder both individuals and groups of German citizens were found. The bloody uprising was supposed to begin throughout Germany in the, immediate, in the immediate future. There was to be murder and arson in cities and villages. These news items had a strong effect throughout Germany. The indifferent citizen who had not wanted to see the enormous danger of Bolshevism looked in horror towards Berlin. He too realized now that Germany faced a terrible threat. The burning Reichstag building was the signal that, every, that brought every German to his senses. The National Socialists, however, were not surprised. They saw it coming. They had long recognized the danger, the danger of Bolshevist world criminality. They had long predicted that what everyone, that what everyone could now see. They had warned the German people about it in 100,000 meetings. They had called them to battle against it in thousands of mass meetings. They organized a mass movement of millions against it. The German people has woken up. It has risen up. It wants to fight against Bolshevist criminality. It demands its destruction, its defeat, its extermination. But the German people do not know who is guilty. They do not know the cause of this terrible uprising, the criminal murderous arson. The German people will fight in vain against this plague, against this poison, if they fail to recognize the scoundrels who mix this poison and spread the plague. 
It is not difficult to find the true cause of Marxist Bolshevist world criminality. It is as clear as the light of day, and one only need open one eyes to know the truth. The truth is that both parties that want civil war, that hate the fatherland, and that only recognize an international were founded by Jews. The Jew Karl Marx, the name to the movement, wrote the program. The Jews LaSalle, Kautsky, Bernheim, Dr. Hilferding, Dr. Moses, Rosa Luxemburg, Liebknecht, Luxemburg, and others led and still lead the socialist and communist parties. The truth, the truth is that the leaders and rabble-rousers and fomenters of the November Revolution of 9th November 1918 were a clique of Jews. Hasse, Musam, Toller, Eisner, Lillian, Neurath, etc. belong to the Jewish people. The truth is that the Marxist movement is in reality a Jewish movement. The goal of the movement is to make the confused, roused masses into an enormous army of slaves. This army would be used and exploited to reach the great goal of Jewish world dungeon. Blaming them exactly what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, of course, with the benefit of hindsight and looking back 82 years, I mean, we can see what was wrong what this guy was writing, that he used this this medium in order to cross a message that would demonize an entire group of people, an entire religion, and that was ultimately responsible for the cold-blooded murder of, of millions of Jewish people, in addition to, you know, millions of communists and, you know, just various groups of people. Um, and millions, the deaths of millions and millions of people. And he was ruled by the He didn't wield what he ruled the bigotry and And that was, that resulted in him being executed for a crime against humanity. So he didn't have a speech. And of course, we'd all, you know, pretty much everyone today would argue that that's mm-hmm. But you did a very interesting I just got an article on Sot. I took this this piece and I rewrote it. Voices are I apologize. We're having a bit of problems with today, so please bear with. Us. We kind of just get confirmation. Are no, are we gone? Let's see. Work. Bear with us. Just out as it happens, but um, um, we're, you know. But, but as I was saying, I took this article and I rewrote it. Um, and what struck while writing is that um. While reading the original article, I was like, oh, you know, it made me angry just reading reading the things that this guy was saying and the implications and suggestions and knowing full well what those suggestions led to. So I wrote, and of course, rewriting it, I just replaced the name whoever's in power in any given time, specifically for Israeli Israeli. See, the way they format it, they format it. Oh, we're gone again. 
definitely does not feel good about it. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe get the F down on computer. Yeah, I turned mine like right off. Uh, we're trying to get out the kind of increase our bandwidth or something. Hopefully that'll work. But are we still gone, guys? Can, yeah, can you hear? Okay, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't strike me in the same way. I'm not. Well, the thing about like mainstream media. The ISIS it would be better. Please enjoy some music.
Just uh, we just tried logging in a different way. Can everyone hear us? Let's see. Okay, we're on. Now, no guarantees that we won't be choppy, but we we tried calling in with Skype as opposed to using the Blog Talk Radio interface. So we'll just try from now on. Now, you know, to to restart the fourth time from what we were trying to say. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was just saying that I, I read this article and it, I had this emotional reaction to seeing the way that these words were used and with the purpose they were used, and I didn't have the same reaction when I was seeing Muslim. And so, why exactly, why exactly was that? That you had a more yeah. muted, yeah. not such a visual reaction to seeing the word Muslim yeah. substituted for Jew. Exactly. And so then, so well, so then that gave me an emotional reaction because you know. Why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't I? Mm. Yeah. Especially when when I did a little searching and found headlines that is being like um, Caliphate is is Islamic world's dream come true and the article says that um, you know there's going to be a world power that by anything this Islamic state and that um, one analyst of, of Islamic studies said that uh, Jerusalem is the prize of the world and the nation whole the major aim of the Caliphate is to rule the world that Muslims are going to either convert everyone or kill and or enslave any that does not convert. And with a little map knowing exactly what their goals were. Mm-hmm. And I think that also one of the reasons that we have for not for living in that different paradigm where the word, you know, where Muslim caliphate and Islamic state and all of that is seems so normal. I mean, is it ties right back into the build up to the Reichstag fire as they as you just in the article you're just reading about all the events and all of the news, the quote-unquote news and the propaganda that was being forced into the public mind that all of a sudden came to a head as soon as the Reichstag burned and they said, "You now we know who's responsible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we can tell you who is responsible because we've been telling you who is responsible for for years now, months and years. And all of a sudden Germany woke up and said, oh yes, you're right. But I'll bet, you know, the, the other flip side of that is... Um, Leading up to the Rashtag fire, there's probably the same reaction to seeing the word Jew. There was not mm-hmm. not any kind of, oh, that's horrible, because it was so much part of the fabric of their media and their conversation and their culture that it didn't seem shocking to see these things being said. Yeah, it was just common knowledge. It was common knowledge. Mm-hmm. 
and common knowledge with all kind of all kinds of um, so-called facts to back it up. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these facts may have been grounded in some kind of reality. Some were just completely made up. But the fact that all of this material was available to the attention of the German public and not just the German public, mm-hmm. that it created this environment where it was just normal. Mm-hmm. And this was the Jews. The Jews were the problem. We need a solution to this problem. Mm-hmm. And look where that led up, led to. Yep. Now, when we look at that today, we have the Muslim problem. People are people in France are responding. Well, just to give an, an example of how they're responding, what's happened in the last week? Well, there have been more than 50 attacks on Islamic uh, groups or buildings or Mos- property or business mosques, businesses, th- uh, grenades thrown, fires shot. Um, yeah, people being killed in their homes. Guy was stabbed. And um, the comedian Dudouin. Dudouinet. Dudouinet. Thank you. Yep. Arrested. It's like a slow-moving crystal knock. Can I say that? And yes. Okay. And so you yeah. <laughs> Thank you. you. Should absolutely. People being arrested for saying anything that can be slightly construed as as supportive or even questioning the the official rhetoric. And not only that, you are arrested, tried, and thrown in jail without, well, not even tried. It's just you're arrested. It's true. And there, are, I think three ki- three kids, kids. One was yeah, twenty two. Like thrown in jail, literally not 24 hours after their arrest with with four and five year sentences. And one of them one of them was drunk at a club and he said and he just said something he didn't even remember what he said. Yeah. And he was arrested for it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, here you have the Paris shootings, the attack on Charlie Hebdo, and this really speaks to McCraney's confirmation bias and perhaps a couple of other biases and logical fallacies that he discusses. And the attack is against a magazine that uh, draw, puts out these cartoons that effectively paint all Islamic people in this terrible, horrible light. So then what happens? You have you know, so-called Islamic terrorists attacking this source of inflammatory, hate-filled cartoons, and there it is. There's the confirmation. Yeah. It's real. We always knew they'd do it eventually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But what makes it so much easier to accept is what was happening before. I mean, uh, and this goes back to the very first chapter in uh, McCraney's book, which is called Priming, which is the way that you can uh, – he describes all these different situations and experiments. It's been replicated many, many times that different details of your environment, different things you're exposed to that you hear – different things that you you know might see or even touch. They do one that involves a, a cup of warm coffee. Predispose you to adopt one or another point of view. And, I mean, I can look back. Uh, where it first really, really hit me was, was watching back in 1983, Back to the Future, where you had Lebanese terrorists who were going to kidnap the doctor and, you know, grab his time machine and do whatever. But, I mean, already... And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are examples going even further back in James Bond movies or whatever, where it switched from being the Russians, because after a while the Russians, you know, just kind of slipped out. It's almost like, shall we say this, it was almost like there was a planned shift of focus to Middle Eastern Islamic type that was being set up as the new demon. 
And it was very, very subtle. Well, I was in New York City the day of 9-11 and was uh, on Fifth Avenue, not just a few miles from seeing the World Trade Center um, impacted. And my first thought was Osama bin Laden. Oh, God. So uh, you solved the crime. I did <laughs> in an instant. He's right here, folks. Uh, <laughs> now, at the time, I knew nothing of false flags, mm-hmm. um, and I, I went back to that day and recognized that I had actually been primed uh, with this information via the media, who mm-hmm. was telling us, you know, for the past several months that we can expect an attack. We can expect an attack, and there my mind went. Right away. I Right away. Wow. Now, it was only later in the day when I was watching TV uh, later that morning and watching one of the Twin Towers fall down that I said, well, wait a second. That looks a lot like a controlled demolition. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We solved that, too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and that was my only, at the time question in my mind that enabled me to uh, say, well, you know, is this whole event um, what it purports to be or what the media was purporting it to be? It's too, um, I woke up that morning and I was, I lived in a different time zone and a different country. And I literally woke up to that news on the radio. I mean, the alarm went off and that was the news. And I, you know, bolted downstairs and threw on the television and they were already showing the one collapse and they showed it over and over and over and I just thought wait a minute you know and I was already a little bit familiar with with um the idea of re- repeated traumatization um you know causing damage to the brain and to the psyche and and that opens you up sort of for some things and and I I turned the television off I forbid it to be on all day because mm-hmm. I did not want my kids exposed to that and I remember thinking, my thought was, this looks just like a movie. Mm-hmm. And then my other thought was, um, and this is getting a little off topic, but my other thought ran back to that X Files, no, Lone Gunman episode. Mm-hmm. And I was, and I thought, this is like a, uh, this is a freaking movie. I mean, it's real, but it isn't. You know. Well, in his book, uh, McCraney starts each chapter with the miscon- the misconception and the truth for these different things. So for priming, he says the misconception is. You know when you are being influenced and how it is affecting your behavior. The truth is you are unaware of the constant nudging you receive from ideas formed in your unconscious mind. So like Carolyn mentioned, this can this can be in various different ways. It can be, uh, well, he gives one example where in an experiment in a lab, it sounds kind of strange when you say it like that. <laughs> they, they put these humans in this lab to, to do this experiment. Well, they did. They they uh, they did two variations of it. One using just word association. So they say the test is about one thing, and they they give they prime you with certain words. In another variation, they put certain objects in the room, just you know, placed around, not very obvious. So the words they used were words related to business, and the objects that they placed around were like a briefcase or uh, you know, a cup of coffee or something to give this 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 uh, idea, just the subconscious suggestion of a business attitude or or framework and then they they gave an ex- they gave the the real experiment was to to give people an option you sit down with another person who the the subject thinks is another subject but in fact they're in on it and you have the option of choosing one of two options from a from a cup two pieces of paper one that you get to choose 
whether you get to choose to make a deal with the other person. You have $10, and you, have to, you get to choose how much to split with them, and the other person gets to decide whether to accept that offer or not. Now, usually when there's no priming with these business words, people tend to, to, give, to do it 50-50, because they figure that, okay, well, I'll split it evenly, and then the person is probably willing to, to accept the offer because I'm being fair, and then we both, we both win. Yeah, because if they didn't accept the offer, nobody won. Right. So, but then when they were primed, it turned out that the, the vast majority of people lowered how much that they, they offered the other person. So they'd give them like maybe three bucks or two bucks or, you know, some, some people even, you know, we offer them a dollar. Or even even in the face of the fact that, that if the other person did not accept the deal, which is what would encourage an even split, they would both lose. They would still mm-hmm. tend to this bias of stiffen the other guy. Right. And, and so it, without the words, when they had the objects, just random objects, 100% of the people split it 50-50. But when they put the briefcase in there, that went down to 50% of people. So 50% of people became more greedy and selfish and less fair simply by putting a briefcase in the room while they were doing this test. And so it's not, it's not just ideas that are formed. It's your actual behavior. You, will, you can act in certain ways that you might not expect from yourself simply from some odd detail that's placed in your environment. That activates some un, unknown portion of your psyche or yeah. unrecognized portion of your psyche. Because you can make, you know, the businessman, you make associations with guys like Donald Trump who are jerks, and then you start acting a bit like a jerk. And so when we see the, the priming that we've been receiving in the media for years, it's just these subtle ideas, the, the use of words next to each other to the point where we hear a word like Muslim or Islamic terrorism or just terrorism or terrorist or attack or evil, and all these associations just come in and they're automatic. Yeah. And that primes us for certain behaviors. So even just to hear the word terrorist, I mean, there's terrorists all over the world. There's terrorists. There were terrorists in Cambodia. There's terrorists in in Africa. There's terrorists in Spain. Mm-hmm. The Basque folks have been, you know, pulling stuff for years. The EDA, EP, can't remember. But if you heard the word terrorist, you automatically add the word Muslim to mm-hmm. it. And, that's, and even though yeah. there's this... I read a statistic the other day. We all love statistics. But in the last five years, in Europe, the percentage of ter- the percentage of terrorist attacks that were committed by Muslims was it was two percent. Two percent in the last five years. So is terrorism really a Muslim thing? Yeah, it's a, most of the terrorist attacks that were connected with separatist. Things Catalonia wants to be separate. The Basque area wants to be separate. There's bits of you know Italy that want to be separate. Um, very little has to do with spreading the idea of jihadism. So that's priming. Mm-hmm. Now there are some others. Another interesting one is a confabulation. So these are the the stories that you tell yourself for. Well, it, it, one example: the stories you tell yourself for why you did something. Now, uh, there are some great cases from split-brain uh, patients who have had the, the hemispheres of the brain severed so that you know one side doesn't know what the other side is doing. And so when you present information to one side of the brain, that will, influence, that will provoke a certain behavior, but when you ask them about it, the, the verbal part of the brain will 
try to give an explanation, but it doesn't know what the other side of the brain was seeing or why it did it. So it'll come up with a perfectly logical explanation for why they did it, and the person will be totally convinced of it, even though it's totally inaccurate. And they were actually doing it for a re- for a very obvious reason. Like, you know, you pr- present the, uh, the word dog to one side of the brain and then ask them to think of an animal, and then the person will say dog. It's like, oh, why did you think of dog? Oh, you know, I was walking down the street earlier, and I saw a dog, and it was just the first thing that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. And, they'll, you know, they're totally convinced of it. But the thing is that it doesn't just apply to to people with who have the you know their two hemispheres severed from each other. It happens all the time. And there are, you know, if you want to get into the detail, there are various explanations in the book for for how this happens and the different ways that it can happen. So you have something like the attack on Charlie Hebdo. Then you have the response. I mean, we we had huge rallies in France in response to this and people using the using the word je suis Charlie. So, you know, I am Charlie. I'm standing in solidarity with this. Well, you ask, if you ask any person why they're doing this, they'll give you a per- perfectly rational explanation. Well, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. not. Some people won't. But they'll give you an explanation. But do they really know why they're doing it? Well, they'll they'll go to the next knee-jerk thing, confabulation, mm-hmm. which is freedom of speech. And then you then want to ask them, well, do you know what kind of speech that you are defending? And they don't often have a good answer. Well, the thing is, you know, these people have all this emotional energy. They've been primed to think about uh, Islamists in a certain way. They're reacting. They don't know what to do with themselves. And they've been directed. Mm-hmm. They've been told, okay, this is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. This is the right way to think about mm-hmm. all of this. Yeah. Um, and it's as though any kind of critical ability to take a step back and say, well, what what really is the meaning of this? What am I really outraged about? Yes, mm-hmm. has been uh, taken away from them and replaced with something else. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much confusion involved after an attack like that because how vul- how vulnerable were those people in their offices? You know, how many people spend so much of their time in their office and never would imagine that gunmen would just mm-hmm. come in, guns blazing, and then just carry on and and have just such a, a psychopathic justification provided by the media and to be filled with all of those images beforehand. It's just either you choose the, that confusion and that cognitive dissonance of choosing you know, to think it through on your own. But you know, after a huge shock like that, what you do with is you just use whatever information is at hand, whatever information you've been given. And the media has done a great job of priming people, and so that confabulation seems to come in just as a it's just so automatic and mechanical that we are that we're so easily puppeteered mm-hmm. following crises like that it's just a it's such a tool that fits right into the hand of individuals who are uh, who are directly benefited from these attacks. I actually read a really interesting article I wish I'd snagged it again from Twitter, my favorite news source <clears throat> but it was a remark that somebody had said, how is it that this meme, this Je suis Charlie, Charlie, had overtaken so quickly professionally produced banners, placards everywhere, buttons. It was like, it takes, you know, no matter how fast and how passionate people are, it takes a little bit of time to get something like back together, you know, get like together. It's, you know, you have to create a silkscreen. I mean, I've done this kind of stuff. It takes a little bit of time to put it and get 
with not even 24 hours later, this whole package campaign was out there and moving. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it makes you wonder. It's a like a, a thought virus. Yeah, but but the fact that, that this material outpouring that people could take and put on their badge and carry their placard and, you know, march with their banner, those banners, those placards and buttons were ready to go mm. so quickly. It was, you know, either an astounding logistics, you know, pulling together of the people or possibly, shall we say, prepared beforehand. Mm-hmm. Well, the the thing that really strikes me is how all of these biases and mental shortcuts work together and how important it is for, well, important from their perspective of, let's say, like a government to have all this information available for the people in order to shape their opinions. Because the basically the, the take-home message from this book is that you are very easily manipulated and that you don't know how easily manipulated you are. And this applies to everyone. And the just the way the way it all works together is just kind of mind boggling when you look at it. Because you so let's take let's look at this a bit more closely. So you have the priming. So you've got in the media you've got the the use of certain words, the associations with certain words put together to create an image that will be readily available to the people when event like this an event like this happens. You have something called the availability heuristic. So this is the idea that um, the the thing that you'll call to mind most readily is the information that's most readily available to you. Now, if you look at the media, what information is most readily available? It is a very specific viewpoint with very few dissenting voices. Mm -hmm. You have to search out a dissenting voice in order to get a real second opinion, which is often closer, more often than not, closer to the truth than the, the information you're getting from the media. So people operate based on what they what what information is immediately available and that has to do with just if it's available in that time and place how often it's available and what is not available mm-hmm. and so you've got priming and you've got availability working hand in hand and then you've got um normalcy bias so for example or go on say, <clears throat> excuse me Normalty violence would would fit in with the fact that that you've been swimming in these ideas for a, who knows how long, and so this just you know just locks right into what you've already been been thinking about anyway, and that also goes into um, you know not not to cut into the thought but conformity bias. I have to go there. Mm-hmm. Okay, but availability. Yeah, all you've had is is these Muslims or even want to take over the world and cut your head off. And so then because. Our thinking isn't as directed as we think it is. It's very automatic. It's very emotional in nature. The ideas just kind of spring up based on associations. So the available, the availability, and the and the priming ha, pr, uh, gives you the raw material that you're going to work with in, when any new situation comes up. And if the only material available is the priming material, then you're set up to react in a way that the people writing the news want you to react. Now. Back to the normalcy bias. This is when, if something, if something, uh, if there's a, a big event that happens, the the misconception, as McCraney would put it, is that people automatically go into fight or flight and they look for a solution, and they get out of it, and they and they save themselves basically. That's not what happens. And he gives the example of um, some uh, plane disasters that happened where, well, one plane was 
um, taxing on the uh, at the airport, and another plane um, misheard their their confirmation to take off. They didn't have confirmation, but they thought they did. It was really foggy, and this plane ended up going like you know going starting to go full speed and almost crashed directly into this other plane. Managed to take off. Um, he saw it. The pilot saw it and managed to start to take off, but he didn't get up high enough, and the tail dragged through the the plane that was taxing. And so they talked to the survivors to see what happened. And the first thing that most people were doing, they were just sitting there with a dazed look on their face. They didn't do anything. The people, one one husband looked over to his wife and, and she had that look on, on her face and he had to tell her, get up, we have to get out of here. And he had to drag her out of her seat and they jumped the, the something like 20 feet from the, the one wing that was available down onto the wreckage to save themselves. Mm-hmm. And a very small percentage of the people actually got off the plane and saved themselves because the rest, the 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 thing going on in these people is that when when a when a crisis like this happens, it's automatic to think that, um, oh well, this this isn't so out of the ordinary. This must be normal. Um, so I'm just going to act as if everything is normal. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a scale. So he gives examples for um, extreme storms, extreme weather. So, for example, in, a, in, a, in a, a place that experiences hurricanes a lot, if there's some strong winds or flooding, people will say, okay, well, that looks normal. And then the water rises a little bit too far, and he's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's, that's just a little bit above normal. So, you know, it should, it should stop pretty soon, and it keeps rising. And by the time it gets to the point where they, they realize this is way out of the ordinary, it's already too late. Mm-hmm. So when, uh, when an incident happens, when a terror attack happens that, ha- that people haven't experienced before, one, it is a big shock, but the way the mind works, we start to see it as normal. And then, with the priming and the availability, the information available from the media, we then have capacity later on to look back in hindsight. The, you know, these attacks happening, they really are, they just confirm what I already know. Um, they, just, they just show me that, that I was actually right. Oh, I predicted that. Or you know, people were predicting that it's it's not out of the ordinary, mm-hmm. and um, and then we start getting the confirmation bias that says that we were right. So this just confirms our previously held belief that that this is a real issue, mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that it they could be completely manufactured. Mm-hmm. We're thinking this because people want us to think it. Not only that, um, to go along with the media and the priming, they already have the solution. Presented, and in this case, the solution is more military on the streets of France, uh, more surveillance, and then of course every other country is going, "Oh my God, look what happened in France! We have to step up our surveillance to keep you happy, to well, not to keep you happy, but to make you feel safe." So priming also uh, gives the idea that the world is a very unsafe place, and yet, um, along with the priming that the world is an unsafe place, is the solution is either in the wings or being presented when you're in that state of shock. And uh, President uh, Barack Obama in America just uh, scheduled a, a security summit for February 18th in order to get um, both parties alongside uh, either side of the Atlantic uh, on the same page in regards to monitoring all the Facebook posts and creating uh, centralized databases to to monitor the movement of these, you know, quote unquote jihadis. Another one of those words that are supposed to inspire us to hatred and to bigotry and to support the um, the continued uh, erosion of our of what little freedoms we did have, because I think is what you've adequately pointed out, Harrison, is that 
Um, one is they say you are not as smart as you are. Uh, also, it's, we're not as free as we thought we were. <laughs> we are much more mechanical than we thought we would be. And that uh, that this this uh, tool, this latest, this latest terrorist attack, is going to keep pushing us in this direction of of absolute actual uh, just absolute terror i mean i just i have felt just absolute despondency just looking at the news and seeing what's happening in france because it's not like they can repeat these things and it just that life can continue on quote unquote as normal when the people choose to believe it then it takes on a life of its own and it becomes a new beast just as we've seen in in france and it's spreading and so i think that what we're seeing is the mutation of the a virus into a once it really enters the hearts and minds of the people, because, you know, plenty of people before might have been skeptical. They might have, you know, there was enough information in the in the airwaves, especially from, you know, Russia Today and different news sources from Russia, just pointing out the obvious about terrorism and mm-hmm. the fact that ISIS and, and Boko Haram was obviously, they've been obviously funded, it's publicly documented by NATO, and they're a tool used to for this process and now that has all been swept away and now we are uh it, it looks like uh you know the, the everyone is the people with this kind of a mentality who see these facts they are going to be uh they're being more quickly uh, swept away just by that threat mm-hmm. that constant threat of you're being monitored your facebook posts are being monitored they don't want this kind of information being out there and when I say they, I mean various parties involved. They, but you know, even if they aren't connected in any real way, they are all connected in the sense that they need these lies to be perpetuated in order to make money off the machine guns, in order to make money off of the bombs, the missiles, the propaganda, the homeland security, you know, positions. They need money. It's a beast, and it's alive and well, and it's feeding off of the fear and the lies that we're seeing right now, and we can see the effects of that in France. Well, if you want to see uh, an excellent example of priming in real time, uh, there is an, a wonderful essay, wonderful, depressing essay that was put up on Science Page by a gentleman named Arthur Silber. And he points out the fact that in the last couple of months, the terms that have been used for identifying the enemy have been broadened. It used to be is Islamic terrorists and Islamic or you know terrorism and all that but he has uh noted in the mainstream that this has been broadened to extremism so that takes it out of as he put it anybody who's actually planning some kind of destructive or murderous act to anybody even espousing or 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 speaking about ideas that go against the narrow prescribed political limits that makes you an extremist. You don't have to be a violent person. You don't even have to be affiliated with any named group, but you are an extremism. You are on the edges of what is acceptable or beyond that. And just gaining that label, which could probably be a good majority you know, of thinking folks, will land you on uh, a surveillance list or restrict your travel or do any number of things. Uh, I do recommend it. It's called uh, Propaganda. Anyway, it's by Arthur Silver. It's up on the science page. It's long, and it is worth every word to read. That reminds me of um, a recent statement made by a Russian minister who was outlawing or prohibiting uh, the propagation of, I think it was Charlie Hebdo type 
cartoon Russia. Mm -hmm. And I think he was, I think he's the only person uh, representing any world power today, any country in the world, uh, to to speak out mm -hmm. about such um, such hate speech and to make a stand against it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it only comes of the experience that Russia has had in the past few years with the West and knowing precisely how uh, the propaganda works, mm -hmm. that that they're able to, you know, see the Charlie Hebdo event for what it is. Well, I'm sure the fifth columnists are screaming freedom of speech at that point in Russia. But also Sil Silver makes this excellent point that satire, that was the label that Hebdo hid behind us. Oh, this is just satire. That satire as an art form, and it is, was directed against institutions and public figures. But that it, it just it degrades to insult and and well as the soccer put it spitting on the soul when you go down to the level that that Ebdo was going to in in making essentially personally insulting cartoons that's not satire anymore. And yeah, Ilan, I think you brought up a really good point about pointing out Russia's uh, the point they're at in their in their uh, their cultural. I guess you could call it after learning so many lessons from their collapse and from the IMF vultures and the Western capitalism and you know Putin coming through and rising up and really displaying a lot of uh, great statesmanship. I think that that points a lot to the parallels of history uh, that we can that we can learn from in the fact in the sense that you know Nazi Germany, uh, communist Russia, just any sort of authoritarian regime does have common characteristics and a lot of those can't be discussed apart from the psychological profile of the people who are instrumental in creating policies and carrying them out and i think that uh, you know political ponderology obviously the book itself is a just just dissects the the nature of the beast bit by bit and that you know everyone especially in these days is probably worth a good reread uh because it seems more and more that the voices that you hear um coming from Nazi Germany that you discussed earlier are you we are hearing them again because it's it's become safer to speak if you're a psychopathic individual or if you're someone who's pathological and has no respect for the other people's cultures or respect for differences or, you know, hates women, hates Muslims, you know, just the list could go on and on. But I think that, um, you know, when we talk about priming and all this stuff, we're talking about a lot of, you know, natural human instincts that are just used against us by people mm -hmm. who just don't even seem to, to share that the same rich associations that we have, you know, that most people have and they, and we're all worse off for it. Well, we, we just watched, Rewatched a movie last night, uh, No Country for Old Men, by the Coen Brothers, and of course, uh, it's it's a movie based on a novel by Cormac McCarthy, but uh, well, the main one of the main characters is just a psychopath, and the movie itself is a very interesting and probably accurate portrayal of a violent, uh, like sadistic psychopath, and there's one scene in that that really gets across. The, the point that I, one of the points I think you're making, Corey, and he he has just been shot in the leg. He's wounded. He's limping. He needs some uh, medical supplies, and so he sees a pharmacy and he pulls up to the pharmacy or walks up to the stumbles over to the pharmacy, and just very nonchalantly um, puts a, a soaks a, a rag of uh, from torn from his shirt 
uh, in the gasoline from a car, puts the, the rag in the gas can there, lights it, and walks away, walks into the pharmacy. The car explodes. Everyone in the pharmacy turn. oh, my God, what is that? They turn and look, and he just nonchalantly shuffles over into the into the pharmacy, picks up whatever he wants. He's not even looking around because he knows what the human res- the normal human response is to a situation like that, and he knows that he can get away with it. And so he gets his supplies and he leaves without a, thought, a second thought about it. Now, in a microcosm, this is exactly what psychopaths in positions of power do. They know what a normal human response is, and they know how to manipulate it to get what they want. Mm-hmm. They know that priming works. They know that by by presenting certain information and and um, marginalizing other information that would um, expose them and expose what they're doing, that they can manipulate the majority of people to support them at what they want to do at any given time. Mm-hmm. And the main way they do that is by blowing stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I'm using that as a, a euphemism or you know a metaphor for just any kind of attack to to uh, focus the attention and the emotions. So it can be a, a mass shooting or a, um, you know planes flying into the World Trade Center, mass deaths. Any kind of big event like that is simply uh, a way of evoking an emotional response from people to then activate. Um, the the thoughts implanted in them by the propaganda, by the priming, by the the stereotypes and existing cultural and um, ethnic tensions that exist, and ramping up and caricaturizing or satirizing mm-hmm. the the stereotype that exists about certain groups, in this case Muslims, and it's just it's like a, it's like playing a concertina, you just push the buttons. And watch what the people do. And of course, the lie is so big, it's so destructive, and so unfathomable to most people that anyone could conceive to uh, construct the lie uh, in, in such a way as as it's as it's actually been constructed uh, to to deceive people. That you know, to read about false flags and to really get your your head around the fact that there are people who are willing and able and actually committing themselves to uh, to doing these things in order to achieve a certain uh, end goal, uh, it, it's just beyond everything. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, like the, like the sheriff in the movie, uh, one of the Texan sheriffs, you know, he says, what can we do to defend ourselves against this? And... I think that's a really that's really big because you know carrying that movie further. I mean, like you said, Ilan, nobody can understand what's going on, and just like in that movie, none of the characters ever came to an adequate understanding mm-hmm. of who was killing them. He was a man in black, and he just walked through town just nonchalantly, just manipulating, getting everything that he wanted, killing when he wanted to, sparing lives, but essentially just a just a murder machine. Mm-hmm. He did and. I think the movie did a good job of not really romanticizing it so much as just putting it there at, like a psychopath. That's just a force of death in our world that we don't understand. And the character that does think he understands him is funnily, it's funny, he's a, he's a stockbroker. <laughs> and he, he is reduced to, you know, to he's killed in his, in his room because he didn't understand him. Mm-hmm. And so, the the reality of the psychopath uh, out there, you know, that's you know, right now in, in in our institutions, 
and that it, you know they we can't possibly understand the depths of depravity that they are capable of and that they are constantly doing and and I think that that has been the biggest handicap obviously just in the modern you know in the turn of the century um since 9/11 is that we will maybe humanity will never be able to be capable of understanding the depths of that evil and to to awaken to that is a very terrifying thing itself mm. and i think that that that's a good segue into where all of this is going mm-hmm. because one of the one of the another one of the take home messages from this book is that we do the same things over and over again and it is because we well essentially we lack knowledge of ourselves we lack knowledge of the of our flaws and the the way the the ways the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves and that we really aren't as smart as we think we are. And that, and wh- how that plays out in life is that we keep getting what we've gotten in the past because we keep trying the same routines and the same tricks and the same mental shortcuts that got us here in the first place. Now, what does that mean in the big picture? Well, in the big picture, it means that history does rhyme, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Things, things repeat. It's like it's a variation on a theme. Mm-hmm. Was it, if you keep always doing what if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll always, you'll get what you've always gotten. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, if we look what's happened in the past, and it's not just the Nazis and the Holocaust. That's one example. It's just it's just a very it's it's a it's an example that's very available for our availability heuristic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but genocide happens all the time. Murder, war, manipulation, false flags, all of these happen all the time. But if we just take the Nazi example what i think that the 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 big implication of all of this is that is happening again and it will happen again it'll happen again regardless of anything else it might be in one country it might be another but it will happen again and so what we've been seeing with the response to charlie ebdo is it's like a it is like a variation on a theme it's like someone took the took the composition of nazi germany put it in a different key Mm-hmm. And it's just playing it on the radio. Mm-hmm. And so what can we look for in the future? Well, what happened in Nazi Germany? We had concentration camps. We had mass murder. We had um, just hate-filled speech and politicians and and the public. We had, we had mass surveillance. We had people turning their neighbors in for nothing. We had torture. Now, we have a lot of those things today. We have... Mm-hmm. We have hundreds of thousands dead in the past 14 years from from these exact same policies but it's not going to get any better is the sad thing and it's not going to get any better because we keep using the same mental shortcuts and you know what we've been talking about now it looks like we've got a caller here um oh we've got Shane in New York so let's go to Shane hi Shane how are you doing hey uh, hey guys. Hey. hey, how's hey Shane. Good. Uh, what did you? Show. Oh, thanks. What did you want to talk about today? Um, well, I was when you know we're talking about um, the book uh, "You're Not So Smart" and you know how it um, kind of brings back us you know, into this uh, very reactionary state, you know, where we kind of get into these routines. There was um, a book that was actually brought up on uh, in the chat room too. Um, called um, 
the Unthinkable, uh, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes by uh, mm-hmm. Amanda Ripley. And um, I think McKinney actually references uh, this book um, when he's talking about normalcy bias. Um, it's a it's a really good read, and you know one of the things that she uh, talks about is you know how even when people are faced with this you know, immediate disaster, um, that people look for you know actual routines uh, to do while they're pretty much right in the middle of it. There is one uh, story where uh, I think the, there is a woman who is in the twin towers and. You know, she was uh, kind of going around in circles looking for, uh, you know, her book to pick up what she was going to take with her, you know, as, uh, as we were evacuating, and um, and it, you know, it just it struck me that, you know, uh, even though Amanda Berkeley was talking about disaster, you know, in an immediate sense, that um, we also experience disaster, you know, over in the course of many years and, you know, more on a, a macro-social scale. And, you know, this is kind of how uh, a lot of people react to these disasters is, you know, by, you know, just kind of retreating um, back into this, you know, these routines and um, kind of, you know, just our, our, our mechanical uh, or reactionary nature. Well, that's, um, that's a really interesting point um, because... Alongside with all the priming, we've been provided with so many distractions, and so many people just have to spend all their energy every day just getting through their day. So, yeah, you would cling to your routine and try to shut out anything that's any more threatening than your daily life. And this reminds me of all of the uh, articles and things we're reading now that speak uh, negatively about people who are prepping. Um, how they might be conspiracy theorists or end of the world extremists. Uh, extremists. Yes. Um, you know why? Why even think about such things? You must be crazy. Um, so, you know that that's kind of setting the mindset for many people who might otherwise question how prepared they are for for certain eventualities and probabilities. Um, yeah, and it. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, Gene. Uh, and it uh, just goes back to that priming too. You know, uh, we, we've been you know told again and again. You know, uh, be afraid of Muslims; they're terrorists. Or be afraid of, of of black people. You know, they're violent. And you know, all these things that like it, it primes people. And you know, after years and years and years of this, um, you know, it, it's just, it's it's really baffling to see uh, you know the reactions of. Um, you know, just everyday people, uh, you know, and the responses to things like, you know, what happened in Ferguson and, you know, now with uh, the outcome of France, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really horrifying um, to see, I guess, just the manifestations of, of, of that priming. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we were talking a little earlier about um, the whole never again idea. And I think the mistake that most people have is that they only apply it to Jewish people. Uh, and mm-hmm. and that, that isn't the lesson of World War II. The lesson is that it can happen to anybody and that the, um, the machinery at work is exactly the same. 
Um, does in this book what what defenses does she give against these these uh, reactions to the unthinkable? What do, what does she advise? Well, uh, one of the interesting things was that you know she so she described people you know in a way kind of shutting down, um, but she also did uh, describe examples of people who were able to respond. And the interesting thing was you know it was people who um, had either been through uh, the situation or a similar situation before, or you know had uh, actively prepared uh, for it, mentally prepared. Um, mm. So the the one example is uh, there is a, a husband and wife uh, who were on a plane that crashed, and uh, the uh, the husband he had been in um, some I think it was like a public fire at some point. And, and he had survived. So whenever he goes uh, into, you know, some uh, type of isolated environment, you know, he he actively, in, in the beginning, you know, he walks up and down the aisles and looks where all the um, um, exits are and, you know, makes sure to, he kind of keeps it in mind. Um, so the, it, it seems like, you know, it's sort of like a, a mental preparation um of you know seeing what could happen um, and you know kind of having that in mind, um, you know if there is some type of, of uh, disaster. So you could say almost he was voluntarily priming himself. If X uh, happens, yeah, I yeah. I know what to do. So that's a good example of priming, and that means you really uh, should pay attention when the air, when the flight attendant is giving her little safety thing. That's not just entertainment. Yeah. Well. Priming. Yeah, which makes it not priming per se. <laughs> priming is unconscious. I thought that was a good analogy, but you're right. It's it's a conscious. What what it is is gaining information. It is exactly what you said, Shane. It, this guy, not only did he have the experience, but he prepared. So, what can we do? You know, what's the solution? Well, the first thing is to gain information. To to read about people's past experiences. If you haven't had them yourself, you read about it, you gain information, you gain knowledge about what's going on. So you read about Nazi Germany. And then you prepare, you say, okay, well, I know that there's a good probability that something like this is going to happen again because it happens over and over and it has for the, you know, as long as we have recorded history. So what signs am I going to look out for? Am I going to fall for the same lies and manipulations that humanity has for its entire past? Well, I don't want I you know, I personally don't want to do that. So I'm going to be on the lookout for it and I'm going to be skeptical about anything that the that I read in the media because I know historically the media have been the ones fighting this propaganda for the purposes of the people that want to do these things and that really want to take over the world. And so I think that's that's one of the I think that's the most important thing we can do is to prepare by gaining knowledge and putting these this knowledge into effect. And by cri- critically look at the information that is made available to us and seeing alternative forms uh, and sources for information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, you know looking at the, just a daily uh, picture of what's going on and you know trying to um, do that on a daily basis and um, you know to, to see what the truth and lies are like any given moment. Um, that can uh, do a lot for, you know, can add up a lot uh, for, 
you know, providing some type of, um, you know, protective measure or, um, um, or preparation. And, you know, it kind of makes me think of um, when, so when the uh, crisis in Ukraine unfolded, you know, the American people had just been uh, subjected to, you know, months of priming against Putin with, um, you know, uh, when when the Olympics were, were uh, yep. being held in, mm-hmm. in, in Sochi. And, uh, you know, it was all about um, Putin being anti-gay. And, and just months before that, you know, the, there was a lot of attention uh, given to, you know, whole, like, Pussy Riot and and that whole issue. And, you know, if, if people are really investigating these things as they come up, um, when... Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of a, a it's a red flag that something could happen, and and then so when things do happen, things do unfold. You, know, you can kind of uh, make sense of it, and that this is where uh, the media or you know the powers that be are, are trying to lead people, and you know you you won't you won't necessarily have to uh, be a part of that uh, uh, that mess. The the Ukraine example is a good one because. While while the Ukraine you know, the, cri- the Ukraine crisis has been um, huge and just uh, you know extraordinary amount of violence, I don't think I think it would it will probably pale in comparison to what we've got coming. But mm. by looking at that, we can see we can see these these dynamics play out in the response to the Ukraine crisis. Now, of course, we've got at least two opposing camps. We've got the the Novorossians on the one hand. And and the Russians, um, because you know they're um, similar backgrounds and we could say ethnicity and language, and um, they they view themselves as connected in a certain way, not w- uh, in uh, in contrast with Kiev and the West. And so, what have we seen in the West? Well, this this crisis broke out with murder, torture. The, the the murder of civilians and um, you know shelling entire villages and towns and cities and um, hospitals and schools and and what have we seen in the West? Well, exactly what we should predict. We we should have seen. We see normalization. We see people just um, just accepting this as normal, accepting the the official explanations. And then when when asked for why this is happening, they confabulate. They give a rash, a plausible explanation for what's going on and their response to it, when this is an entirely manufactured, manipulated response on their part. They don't have the information. They're seeing it completely backwards, and they're a- operating as total machines in response to this, thinking that they are free and um, rational individuals when it's the total opposite. Mm-hmm. And some of the pieces of information that have been completely left out of the Western media is that the, the battalions that are leading the fight uh, from Kiev against the Novorossians uh, are neo-Nazi, uh, the Azov Battalion. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, midnight, you know, torchlight vigils right. um, of people commemorating uh, the leadership of Stephen Stefan Bandera. Mm-hmm. Who was a Nazi yeah. collaborator? Um, he was a monster. And he was a total monster. Uh, had incredible influence that stretched out even to a coup that was attempted uh, against Roosevelt during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And these are just huge pieces of, of information that have not been made available to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they have absolutely no um, uh, criteria to look at the situation from a greater context. Well, there's a perfect example out there on the web if you go find it. There is a picture of some small group from some member, I can't say if it's the Azov Battalion or not, but in this picture of all these smiling people is a Ukrainian flag, a Nazi flag, and a NATO flag, Right. all in one group. I mean, if that isn't it, right there, but you will never, mm-hmm. ever, ever see that in the Western media, ever. Now, speaking of swastikas, oh, yeah. <laughs> we were just saying at the beginning of the show that, oh, well, you know, the details aren't exactly the same. I mean, we don't, we don't have swastikas. Well, you know, actually, we do have we do. swastikas. <laughs> And yeah, the neo-fascist parties have been, you know, sparking up in across Europe ever since you know austerity measures were introduced, mm-hmm. uh, however many years ago, six years ago or so. And I mean, still in Greece, I think they just were holding a trial to uh, to try some of the Nazi party leaders there for the murder of a of a of an activist and musician uh, not too long ago. But they, what had, was revealed as they, people are investigating were the significant ties between the Nazi party and the mainstream Democratic Party, which I believe was the New <laughs> Democracy, was the name of it. I can correct me if I'm wrong, though. But, I mean, all across the EU, we're seeing these things rise up, and we do have swastikas. We do have swastikas that we need that kind of context to see also where all this can lead to, because these aren't all separate and, you know, in their own little boxes. They're all very much connected, and the flames what can spread quickly elsewhere. Well, when you talk about austerity, there's another, not even history rhyming, but history repeating, because it was in the background of German economic devastation due to the Treaty of World War One, where, where hyperinflation set in and people were literally starving. That was one of the backdrops that Hitler made all his promises against. Mm-hmm. And here we are having that same situation developing all through Europe in some countries faster than others. But but it's not too long before it hits the so-called stronger members of the EU. And when you get desperate people who can't even feed their kids, they will do desperate things. And the leaders would love to see that, I'm sure. Oh. I mean, nobody wants – the leaders don't want to be the scapegoats for the problems. Mm-hmm. That are that are going on underneath their leadership, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Well, well uh, thanks for calling in, Shane. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, yeah, there's. Uh, I just had one more one more thought uh, in relation to you know the, uh, the what's going on in Ukraine and you know how how crazy it is that there's you know these actual literal Nazis um, you know uh, in charge burning things and. Uh, I had just come across a, a piece of information um, that um, so the neocons, like they're, you know, the, the father of neocons, uh, uh, kind of attributed to Leo Strauss, and you know, apparently one of his um, um, mentors was a, a German Nazi philosopher, uh, Karl Schmidt, and uh, so it, it's it's interesting to see, you know, the traces of you know, literal Nazism, because uh, uh, apparently Carl Schmidt was, uh, you know, fairly in- influential um, in you know spreading the, the Nazi I- ideology, and then for Strauss to kind of pick up um, the the pieces uh, in that philosophy and, and you know kind of carry it into uh, the uh, neoconservative um, mm-hmm. movement, 
and you know, and, and that was pretty much the the basis that drove uh, America towards you know madness after 9/11. Um, so yeah, it, it is it is pretty uh, fascinating to to see how you know all these things kind of tie in with one another. Um, but yeah, I, I just want to say you know thanks for uh, talking about all, all these uh, all these important things and um, and have a good one. All right, thanks, Shane. Thank you. Take care. Shane. Well, Shane talked about Leo Strauss and the neoconservative movement. Well, one of the biggest neoconservatives is Richard Pur- Richard Pearl, who you mentioned earlier, Ilan, and he was the guy that said it, that said you needed to decontextualize the Israeli-Palestinian situation, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting connection there. Yeah. Well, um, just one more thing I wanted to, to add about what's going to happen. And so when you read a book like You're Not So Smart, you kind of, well, in in political ponderology, the book you brought up, Corey, mm-hmm. uh, Lobachevsky makes an interesting remark about psychopaths, that they seem to be like almost like caricatures of psychologists because they analyze the, the normal human responses and uh, really have a, a good grasp on human psychology in service of being able to manipulate it. Now, one of the things ordinary people can do, non-psychopaths, try to actually gain those skills that they lack Mm -hmm. because it is really handy to be able to know human psychology. We just kind of accept, well, we live it, but we don't analyze it. We don't have metacognition about the way way in which we think and the way in which we feel. But by reading a book like You're Not So Smart, do do you get an idea of how humans operate, how you yourself operate, but you can also use that to kind of predict what will happen in certain situations and to know what will happen, be prepared. And so when we look at what's coming, um, I already mentioned one example of, um, well, things things will escalate, you know, things will get worse. We're, we're seeing a repeat of Nazi Germany. But when we look at the specifics of some examples of what's going to happen, you know, um, it's kind of like the movie v-, v for Vendetta where you got the the police officer shooting a kid in the street and things blow up. But um, this will be examples, you know, and I mentioned concentration camps and basically just things getting a lot worse. But what's going to happen with the people? How are the people going to respond? Well, first they're going to normalize. They're going to look at what's happening as just this incremental kind of uh, frog boiling in the water. It just it gets hotter and hotter bit by bit, but just enough so that it seems like it's normal. And it'll seem normal until it is too late, until horrible, horrible things are happening. Go ahead. And I'd like to just uh, just inject right there about uh, just how things are ramping up. This is from a I'm going to read from a science article uh, about the tyranny. It just put up uh, yesterday about the tyranny spreading in Europe and what tyrants would like to see. Um, it's uh, and here we go. The lockdown of the populace is already ramping up. The EU is currently discussing the creation of a European passenger name record database, national ID database, meaning officials hope to create a centralized database with a file on every single citizen. Think the no-fly list is a terrifying concept? Wait until it becomes publicly accepted for all web comments, Facebook posts, and blog posts to be added to an ongoing record that determines whether you are allowed to travel. Wait until it becomes a mainstream notion that every travel destination you visit is tracked, recorded on permanent record, and scrutinized by some pencil-necked bureaucrat who then determines whether or not you are a suspect. 
And if you know, if you think that is just a wide-eyed uh, conspiracy theory, obviously, you know, we've already been under surveillance for a long time, and you know, conspiracy theorists themselves are basically just ponderologists trying to get into the minds of people who would be capable of pulling off these kinds of things. And I mean, it's happening right now. It's happening right now, and who's who's really doing anything about it? Who will do something about it? Not very many, because. Mm-hmm. When you look at some of these biases, we've got two that I think stand out, conformity and the bystander effect. Mm -hmm. Now, so conformity is pretty obvious. People conform even when they don't think they're conforming. You may think that you're, you know, this um, anti-establishment rebel individual when really you're conforming with other anti-establishment, you know, uh, individualist rebels. And that's just the way it is. Humans conform, and they listen to authority, and they obey authority. They tend to. They, they tend to you know, not everyone does. In well, in certain contexts. And mm-hmm. it's such a deep instinct. I mean, that's bone deep from evolution. I mean, if yeah. you weren't part of the tribe, you didn't live. Mm-hmm. So it's a particularly strong one to it's get a, around. It's a survival skill. It's killing us. So, the one of the examples that McCraney uses is the Milgram experiment, um, where the the experimenter tells the subjects to give electric shocks to a person doing like a vocabulary test or something. And most people will give the shocks, even though they're not real, and they'll just keep escalating them. What is left out of the interpretation of that experiment is that in a real-life situation, a person telling another person to kill a third person is, chances are, a pathological individual Mm -hmm. in a position of authority. So what you have is that conformity really depends upon the character of the person giving the orders. And in this case, we have psychopaths giving the orders. Mm-hmm. And the bystander effect, so why didn't anyone do anything? How did, the, how did the Gestapo get away with what they were doing? Why didn't anyone stand up? Well, in a group of people, when something happens to an individual, let's say they get hit by a car or you know, they get mugged or beaten up and they're on the side of the street, People that are watching that happen, the more people tend to think, oh, well, someone else will take care of it. Mm-hmm. Or they look around and see no one else taking care of it. And so then that kind of, that that um, that tendency trickles into their mind and they, they do the same thing. So I don't, I don't see anyone else acting, so I shouldn't act out mm-hmm. because I want to be like the group mm-hmm. and or, you know, someone else is going to take care of it. You're much more likely to have someone help you if you're alone and if it's one-on-one. Mm-hmm. But the at least the hope in this situation is that people will intervene and help if one person acts as that mm-hmm. that role model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we we lack role models like that, or we tend to lack role role models like that in government and among politicians. Mm-hmm. We have you know some in other countries, but they don't have a lot of influence on what's going on in our countries. Mm-hmm. But really the the take-home message for that is is to be aware of your own conformity, be aware of your own tendency not to do the right thing because others aren't doing the right thing, and to act as that one beacon that will then enable other people mm-hmm. to go along with you. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that doesn't tend to happen, and it gets to the point where things are so bad that that one person that acts out is then arrested and tortured, mm-hmm. life in prison, or just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's coming. Oh, it's here. 
uh, you know, you have uh, arrests being made of people feeding homeless mm-hmm. people in Florida. There was that story of a few months ago. Uh, so there's already this uh, this idea that um, to help others, uh, you know, when it's against some arbitrary, ridiculous law, uh, is wrong and and punishable by incarceration or some other form of punishment. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you can extrapolate and see how that may be uh, extended into other spheres very soon. Yeah, disrespecting or defying the a cop's authority is is uh, instant death. Mm-hmm. That's you know, they have the right to execute you. It's not written in any law books anywhere. I don't think it's the unstated. But law. it's uh, unstated. It's now it's an accepted. It's a norm. It's become a norm. And then they blame you. And then they will blame you for resisting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they, you know, if there's any you left. Mm-hmm. So basically, given our tendency to conform and to follow authorities. What we really need is a a good authority to follow, and lacking that, we need to become those authorities. Mm-hmm. But uh, speaking of of inspirational sources and good leaders, we're nearing the end of the show, so I think we'll just come back to Martin Luther King for a minute for a minute uh, to wrap up. Sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this segment is um was made about a year before his assassination. It's a speech at Stanford. And uh, it's quite interesting also in light of some of the things Leah's regards racism and how he's able to not see uh, the anti-black, anti-Negro racism that existed at that day in isolation. So take it away, Martin. We must see racism for what it is. It is the myth of the superior and the inferior race. It is the false and tragic notion that one particular group, one particular race is responsible for all of the progress, all of the insights, and the total flow of history. And the theory that another group or another race is totally depraved, innately impure, and innately inferior. In the final analysis, racism is evil because its ultimate logic is genocide. Hitler was a sick and tragic man who carried racism to its logical conclusion. And he ended up leading a nation to the point of killing about six million Jews. And this is the tragedy of racism because its ultimate logic is genocide. If one says that I am not good enough to live next door to him, if one says that I am not good enough to eat at a lunch counter, or to have a good decent job, or to go to school with him, merely because of my race, he is saying consciously or unconsciously that I do not deserve to exist. To use a philosophical analogy here, racism is not based on some empirical generalization. It is based rather on an ontological affirmation. It is not the assertion that certain people are behind culturally or otherwise because of environmental conditions. It is the affirmation that the very being of a people is inferior. And this is the great tragedy of it. I say 
that however unpleasant it is, we must honestly see and admit that racism is still deeply rooted all over America, is still deeply rooted in the North, and it's still deeply rooted in the South. Now this leads me to say something about another discussion that we hear a great deal, and that is the so-called white backlash. And I would like to honestly say to you that the white backlash is merely a new name for an old phenomenon. It's not something that just came into being because shouts of shouts of black power or because Negroes engaged in riots and what's, for instance, the fact is that the state of California voted a fair housing bill out of existence before anybody shouted black power or before anybody rioted in Watts. It may well be that shouts of black power and riots in Watts and the Hollams and the other areas are the consequences of the white backlash rather than the cause of them. What it is necessary to see is that there has never been a single solid monistic determined commitment on the part of the vast majority of white Americans on the whole question of civil rights and on the whole question of racial equality. This is something that truth impels all men of goodwill to admit. It is said on the Statue of Liberty that America is the home of exiles. But it doesn't take us long to realize that America has been the home of its white exiles from Europe. But it has not evinced the same kind of maternal care and concern for its black exiles from Africa. It is no wonder that in one of his sorrow songs, the Negro could sing out, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. What great estrangement, what great sense of rejection caused the people to emerge with such a metaphor as they looked over their lives. What I'm trying to get across is that our nation has constantly taken a positive step forward on the question of racial justice and racial equality. But over and over again at the same time, it made certain backward steps. And this has been the persistence of the so-called white backlash. In 1863, the Negro was freed from the bondage of physical slavery. But at the same time, the nation refused to give him land to make that freedom meaningful. And at that same period, America was giving millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that America was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor that would make it possible to grow and develop. And it refused to give that economic floor to its black peasants, so to speak. And this is why Frederick Douglass could say that emancipation for the Negro was freedom to hunger, freedom to the winds and rains of heaven, freedom without roofs to cover their heads. 
He went on to say that it was freedom without bread to eat, freedom without land to cultivate. It was freedom and famine at the same time. But it does not stop there. In 1875, the nation passed a civil rights bill and refused to enforce it. In 1964, the nation passed a weaker civil rights bill. And even to this day, that bill has not been totally enforced in all of its dimensions. The nation heralded a new day of concern for the poor, for the poverty-stricken, for the disadvantaged, and brought into being a poverty bill. But at the same time, it put such little money into the program that it was hardly and still remains hardly a good skirmish against poverty. White politicians in suburbs, suburbs talk eloquently against open housing and in the same breath contend that they are not racist. Now all of this and all of these things tell us that America has been backlashing on the whole question of basic constitutional and God-given rights for Negroes and other disadvantaged groups for more than 300 years. So these conditions, persistence of widespread poverty, of slums, and of tragic conditions in schools and other areas of life, all of these things have brought about a great deal of despair and a great deal of desperation great deal of disappointment and even bitterness in the Negro communities. Today all of our cities confront huge problems. All of our cities are potentially powder kegs as a result of the continued existence of these conditions. Many in moments of anger, many in moments of deep bitterness, engage in riots. Let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that non-violence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve. That in a real sense it is impractical for the Negro to even think of mounting a violent revolution in the United States. So I will continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. Continue to affirm that there is another way but at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously 
as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. So genocide is the logical extension of racism. Uh, we talked a lot about the Paris shootings today and the Islamic Islamophobia that we're seeing being ramped up in the form of policies and, uh, and the bombing of or attacks of mosques and Muslim groups in France in particular. Um, I think we can look at all these things in the broader scope of history and the war on terror and see where all this is going uh, without exercising too much imagination. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can end it there for today. We'll be back next week. And I think we were planning on talking a bit more about Martin Luther King today, about the assassination but we kind of didn't, so we're gonna we're gonna put that off and make uh, our third week in a row talking about Martin Luther King. So we'll have we more can information. Make a Martin Luther King month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he deserves a month, I think. Exactly. But uh, thank you for everyone, to all our listeners. Thanks to Shane for calling in. Thanks for your patience while we got our technical problems sorted out. Yes. Yeah, and that was—I can confirm—that was Blog Talk Radio's fault. <laughs> because when we signed in with Skype, everything went fine, apparently. It's a conspiracy. It, it wasn't is. Us. Yeah. You're not supposed to get the message. I think that's a confirmation bias that we're using there. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it just feels so good, you know? All right. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Bless thank you all. You. We'll see you next week. Okay. Bring a friend. Okay. Yeah. Everyone, take care. Thanks to Ilan, Corey. I'm Carolyn. Thanks to Harrison. <laughs> Carolyn. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, everyone.